Hello and welcome to BZ Listening. I'm your host, BZ Douglas. Every Monday I feature the songs and stories of musicians I've met along my musical journey. Uh, you can follow BZ Listening on Instagram and Twitter at BZ Doug, that's B-Z-D-U-G, and Facebook at BZ Listening. Uh, the show will always be ad-free because everyone needs a safe space from capitalism, and I, I want this podcast to be that for you. This is a listener-supported show, and you can help out by visiting patreon.com slash bzdug. Even supporting at $1 a month makes a huge difference, and we'll get you a shout-out on the show. Speaking of which, a very belated shout-out to Michael Hornsby and Michael McFarland, who jumped right on when I first dropped the Patreon link. At the three-month tier, you can receive access to the unedited interviews. And if you go big at $10 a month, I'll bestow you with the title of associate producer, and you can choose a guest for the show, attend or stream a live taping, and submit your own questions for the guest. Okay, all the uh, asking is out of the way for the show. So today's guest is one of the first musicians I befriended in New York City, Pat Hall. Pat is a singer-songwriter from Connecticut, currently based out of Chico, California. He has a unique finger-picking style, but what really sets him apart is his counter-tenor vocal range. That's a term I just learned from his bio, and it means his range extends one octave above the standard tenor range. So be sure to swing by patholemusic.com for all of his albums, upcoming tour dates, and merch. Uh, as always, I will post links to follow Pat on all the things, Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, and of course, MySpace. Uh, that'll be, all be up on the website at bzdug.com slash podcast. And I think that's it. Thank you so much for listening. And now let's get on with the show. I'm talking now with Pat Hull, and I'm pretending that we haven't already been talking for like two minutes because that's a thing you do on radio shows that you're recording, but this isn't the radio, it's podcast, so uh, maybe I won't like that intro, and I'll just come in and I'll fix it, and we'll see what happens, but uh, yeah, Pat, uh, how you call? How are you doing? Where are you calling from today? I'm calling from Chico, California. Chico, California, Okay. And so I met you in um, New York at one of the uh, open mics that were just in, in my circuit. I can't remember if I first saw you at Lucky Jack's or if it would be Penny's open mic. Yeah, I feel like it was Penny's. I think it might have been. This is inside baseball of New York open mics for uh, <laughs> circa like 2010 for all the listeners who That's weren't right. there. You weren't there, man. You don't know. You don't know Penny. Pfft. Yeah, it was a dynamic open mic scene. It really was. It was really special. Um, and, you know, and it's still, that mic is still going because there was something, Penny is, you know, great. Um, but th there's also like, you know, something that was special that uh, about that space, which is the under St. Mark's Theater and why it's still going is just because doing a mic in a room like that, you have like seven minutes on a hard timer, but you get the spotlight and total focus if you know anyone in that room is really listening and you can really see yeah. it and in new york you would for you know it was a quintessential like you know you want to see what new york's underbelly of performance has and all the 
people that are coming here from everywhere one night at Penny's and you'd really get a show. Yeah, I know. 40, 50 performers running till like three in the morning. What do you think was the most memorable thing for you that sticks out from down in that uh, basement theater? Specifically Penny's. I mean, I don't know. I guess it's not even just performing at it. It was the whole like event itself of leaving the house with my book and like going there knowing I was going to perform for like four hours. Right. And then just either staying for a bit, watching performers, needing a break, reading a little bit, going for a walk, coming back. And it was not just playing and leaving. It was like, all right, you drew your number and then you could be waiting around for hours and hours. And so I just remember making a lot of friends and connections in the, in the times that I actually wasn't playing at all. Um, which I yeah. think is what that kind of an open mic scene is all about is like, you know, you play two songs, but it's more about interacting and listening than anything else. Oh yeah. And I have as many like good memories of, you know, sitting there and taking in, you know, great music or, you know, you have someone come to the stage like Satan. <laughs> who, oh my God, that's right. <laughs> who used to be a part of the carnival who would just show up. Sometimes his set was just to stare blankly at the audience for seven minutes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And then all the time, the good times hanging out in the back courtyard. Cause if you did want to socialize, that was the other great thing. They had that private courtyard. You can go back there. You can exactly, drink, you can yeah. smoke. Um, some, some nights I'd spend most of the night watching the show. Some nights I'd spend most of the night, like, you know, talking with people I hadn't seen for weeks. Yeah. And that was kind of the low pressure about it. It was just like, you got good attention and connection with that stage, but you know, you could do whatever you want with that four hours and it didn't, wasn't like a lot of pressure to kind of be there for that time. You could go on the courtyard or go for a walk or whatever. So I kind of like that element about it. So I'm going to go back to, so you got, when did you get to New York? First of all, just so I have a timeline. When were you, uh, when I met you in about 2009 or 10, uh, how long had you been there? I was there, let's see, I was there from 2007 to 2009. No, wait, 2009 to 2011. And then I moved out here in 2011. Okay. So what was your path to uh, New York? Like like going way back to like sort of the beginning, where where did you grow up and, and how did music first start to become a component of your life? Yeah, well, the New York thing, I think, was a lot of just who you, who you know and proxemics, really. Like my two brothers lived there and it was close to where I grew up in Connecticut. I went to school in Poughkeepsie, the Hudson Valley. So it was just kind of like, you know, it was the unspoken next thing you do in that area. is like, yeah, you go live in the city for a bit. Uh, I didn't know if I was going to like it or not, but I was like, yeah, I, I, this is the time to go see, have that city experience. And so, yeah, after school I went there and I, it wasn't really for music necessarily. I was, I wasn't, I was still like incredibly green playing music. I wasn't like, I'm going to go to New York and, make big moves i was just like man you and i have such you, know, you and i have such different definitions of green <laughs> just because you know because uh, the songs i remember you playing you know um so far gone and uh uh stuff off of your your first record um what's the other one just like you 
Um, yeah. Just like the technique you had with your hand and then what you do with your voice blew me away. Just to, that was the sort of thing where was like, wow, you can see someone like this at an open mic for free. Thanks, man. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know, green is the way I define it is is more about how you feel inside as it's happening. It's like I never felt at that point that I was really, truly very comfortable on stage performing. Like I was definitely improving with the craft, but I, I wasn't at that stage now where I feel just like super second nature. What was your gateway into music? Was it singing, guitar? Uh, is it in your family? Yeah, it's all, I mean, music's definitely my family. My Both my parents are music teachers. So I, yeah, I went to college and I hadn't really played anything seriously up to that point. I mean, I grew up playing instruments that my parents made me, but I wasn't really that into it. And then college, I just, I picked up the guitar and I got super into it, man, like four hours a day at least practicing. I was just like obsessed So with piano it. lessons didn't take with you either? No, dude, nothing to that. I did piano, cello, saxophone. It's become a meme on this show of just that asking guests like, yeah, like they had to, if they had to do piano lessons, they hated them. Like with the exception of like two people maybe. Right. Yeah. And what's funny is I'm going back to it now, like super intrigued by it and uh, interested in it again. Oh yeah, none of them like regret it. They what they it's just they all remember at the time they hated how the piano lessons yeah. were taught. Deb, uh, every time she hears it now, she pulls her hair out. She's like, "Where the f- were my parents? <laughs> they forced me. I wish yeah. I knew how to play piano now, and I'm forty and I'm playing music." Yeah, I know. It's all about the teacher, I think, and just t- like anything else, timing. Um, and so yeah, growing up, I didn't. Just wasn't the right time for me to discover music, but did you try out? Have to try out a lot of instruments. Uh, yeah, I did, and like, I guess my mom said I was good at them. I didn't really care enough to even know if I was good. Just like I'm doing this thing because my parents want me to, and uh, my my parents were. I remember them being so vividly upset when I quit the cello. They're like, "You're really, really good," and I was like, "Why? Well, really, really don't care." So. <laughs> Yeah, I got, I have that, uh, you know, feel like that, that dilemma now. And you're a parent now, too, since um, the last yeah. time we hung out. But I think about that as far as, like, you know, I know that Deb and I are both kind of in the same place where it's like we didn't have parents that pushed us to be like, my dad had, like, a keyboard around the house and, and, and maybe a trumpet, but and they, never, I, they never were like, okay, you're going to do an instrument or something like that. And right. then, uh, and then we came to it and we're excited about it now, but I don't want to know if I want to like put it on Dominic, like, well, you got to do this because I didn't get to do it as a kid and I'm going to make you ha- like, you know, if that's yeah, even yeah. worth it or it's just like, we're going to play and have fun. We'll be over here, Dom, your mom and I will be playing music. You'll see us in our shows. And if you would like to come yep. join us, come on over, but you don't have to do this. Yeah. Yeah. I think just like anything else kids being around adults that are enjoying something is enough persuasion uh and i I feel the same way and my son's almost five and i'm i'm asking like what instrument he wants to play i'm not asking him if he wants to play an instrument because it's already pretty known that he wants to play music yeah just from seeing how much i enjoy it so um giving kids that freedom, like, hey, what do you want to choose? It could be literally anything.
Coming back around to, you know, you had uh, musical uh, parents trying to bring you into things a bit more like directly or dragging you along. You're like, yeah, or, and then you get a hold of a guitar. What is in college this happens? Yeah, and it's just kind of like, 
it took off. I think before music, sports were my challenge, my way of articulating style and um, like through my body kinetically. And um, once I wasn't good, I mean, I wasn't good enough to play sports in college. So I just, I kind of channeled that, that energy toward music. I was like, oh, look at this amazing instrument that is going to take me a lifetime to even understand. So, yeah, I just like dove in pretty obsessively. Now, when did the, how did your songwriting develop? Um, because is Oh, uh, so shittily. I mean, just like total mockery and mimicry for the first three, four years. When you say mim- oh, mimicry, just sort of like being like, oh, that's just deconstructing a song and, and, and overlaying new words. Yeah, or just, you know, I listened to who I listened to, and then I wrote my own song, but it was really just an offshoot of whatever I was hearing. You know, I didn't have my, I didn't even, I didn't have a style yet, because I didn't, I don't think I was a full human yet. Well, who, <laughs> were, who were you mimicking that would you consider your... Uh, uh, when, I, when I first started, this like Neil Young, Bob Dylan, just like anyone that was, that was acoustic guitar-driven... So I could play along to them and just practice and yeah, it was like pragmatics in the first few years. Just how do I get better at this thing and have fun at the same time? I was like, wow, I can play a Bob Dylan song in three chords. This is brilliant. And it really made you feel like you were getting somewhere. You know, I can't imagine. It's like, I think that's part of the frustration of music early on. It's like you're being taught how to play a Bach or Mozart piece and it's so hard to even like get through a portion of it. And it's like, here's Bob Dylan with a C and a D. I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> Just becomes more, more affirming. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that gets back to like, there's been a, a modal, a modality to teaching music that doesn't seem like it has resonated very well with like, you know, this, the arbitrary survey of musicians I've done, like, yeah, they did it, but it didn't, they didn't stick with it. And they were glad to be out of it when they, with regard to piano lessons, the one exception was right. like, a teacher who was like, well, what, what do you like? Oh, you're into, you know, if it was like Elton John or whatever, let's learn how you can do a lot with like what you just said, here are three chords where you can make your own songs and that let your interest in music, what, what is grabbing you about it even if it's just like these are the chords that yeah. really grab you right now play around in those for a long time and then you know get to the top of mm-hmm. where you can be with that and move it in move it along yeah it takes an amazing amount of compromise i mean my mom teaches music so or teaches piano so i think initially when she first started it was pretty easy you know pre-explosion of the internet like to give them pieces of music to try and now students are coming to her like hey no 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 i'll tell you what we're gonna do we're gonna learn this taylor swift song Hmm. and uh (laughs) you know it's like incorporating so my mom has to compromise more like okay yeah we can do this pop tune and um but also you know once we do that let's look at you know some bach classical piece next or something you know your guitar is, is as I said, I, I, um, what you do with finger picking and just the style of it, I, I, I found really impressive when I saw it, when you said, you know, you felt green or whatever, however long you've been playing guitar. But I think, and you have to know that um, probably one of the things that most people walk away 
thinking like, oh, that's Pat Hull is, is you have such a distinctive high voice in singing. Yeah. Is that something that, uh, caught people's attention early on like oh that's a special thing to have in choir or this or just the first time you went out singing or did it take you a while to find that and that I mean not really I think I it was like anything else I don't it never really stood out to me as anything unique because it's not forced yeah you weren't like setting out like like to like i'm gonna do this range because people don't do that it's just yeah it's your natural range but i it you have to get called out for um it's it's a special thing i think the range of your voice it's a great and special thing totally yeah no i and people mention it all the time and it's kind of uh my one of my friends who saw me is like man i love your voice but uh you have really nothing to do with that so (laughs) i thought that was a pretty like kind of backsided compliment (laughs) Um, just like, yeah, it's, it's my range. It's my, uh, physiologically what I'm capable of. I think I did, it wasn't like right away. I found it. I think like, Oh, I just kept stretching and like, Oh, this feels, I I kind of built that comfort zone up there. Um, but yeah, people definitely, it's like, Oh yeah, that's fair. It's a unique style of singing. Like, Oh cool. Really? I didn't even see, I didn't even, I really didn't even see it that way or think like, wow, I can really. I'm such a different singer. I was just very naturally, came very natural to me. What was your first uh, time stepping out to an open mic to try out your own songs? Oh, man. I remember Marist College. And I was so nervous. Oh, my goodness. Um, they used to have these open mic nights like once a month. And like it was, it was unfortunately like prized and, you know, it was rated. So you went up there and... And then you won some. Ooh, you know, I, that's hard. Gift gift certificate. Yeah, it's like a weird thing. It's like if you get number one, there's like three judges and like. Uh, so maybe it's less open mic, but um, that was my first time like really going out and performing and like for first prize you got some bullshit Applebee's gift certificate or something. But um, I just I told myself to keep doing it because it was a big challenge. It was, I mean, you know how it is, like. Uh, it's a level, such a level of fear to perform, especially when you first start it. Mm-hmm. Um, it took so long to really feel comfortable up there. And no sympathy for me 
going to college for um was has music ever been like oh your central thing or has it been uh something you're just pulling off as you can on the side but yeah i went to school for um from for communication studies i was psychology and social work minor and so i just i just went into school because i mean into those majors because they were super interesting to read about psychology and social work and i was like thought for sure i'd be a social work um i'd go and get my msw master's social work and be a social worker but um the more i studied and the, and the more i talked with people about social work and how unpredictable it is getting funding depending on government the burnout i was like oh wow maybe maybe i I, sh- I, I don't want to do this and so yeah i just I stick with communication studies theories and now I teach it at the college. That's my job. My other job. It's the circle of college. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, I'm one of the <laughs> few that are applying their liberal arts degree. <laughs> well, I mean, it's better than, you know, some people like kind of go into like, commu- like something open, like communications or English and they just keep going back to grad school over and over and over again and everybody totally yeah i'm not sure what to do with this and yeah eventually the only thing to do with it is to teach it and get out from the debt exactly occurred getting the degree oh and when someone asks hey if you didn't teach what would you do with your degree i'm like that's a great fucking question like i have (laughs) i have no idea if i could apply my degree if i wasn't teaching I i don't know what that would even look like 
you know, be a consultant or something, like go into firms and tell them how to like be gender sensitive. <laughs> was it communications in terms of theory or in terms of application? I studied communication theory, communication studies, so it wasn't it wasn't public relations based or anything. Um, didn't have that element of pragmatism. It was just pretty theoretical. What does the communications uh, entail, like as far as what you're what you have to walk away understanding in that field? Well, one of the pre- most pragmatic thing is public speaking. So working on that skill can be applied to any major. Um, well, I need to learn that for this. Down- I, I, having edited this, I'm aware of so many verbal tics I have between the basic stuff like ums and then my idiosyncrasies with I'm yeah. sure at some point I am going to lead into a question saying, so I'm just curious. It's like I... I'm screaming at my brain. I'm like, stop saying like, yeah, I don't, I don't count many fillers at all in your language. Uh, pretty sophisticated speaker to me, but, well, um, I think that that comes with how comfortable I am with the subject. Um, I've interviewed people completely cold who are just like, you know, uh, journalists I've reached out to or something like that. But, and then I'm more, not know, especially when you're on the phone and you can't see how a question lands. I might sprawl with how I'm trying to describe what I want to say. Yeah, I mean, and beyond public speaking, uh, he learns various theories of competent communication. And really, it's like it's empathy building stuff. I teach uh, nonviolent communication in class to college students, which is the most recent thing I've been doing. That's very pragmatic and helpful reversing language patterns and kind of replace replacing them with a better more adult sophisticated compassionate mm. symbology of words you know it's like hey here's what we've been doing here's some alternatives that might be better suited for healthier relationships yeah so where do you land on the issue that's coming into more into the forefront with um, transgender people and the gender spectrum of, you know, using they and them more. I personally, yeah, I, I, I personally mean, am all for it just out of like, it doesn't yeah. affect me, but then I'll read these highfalutin pieces by, I guess conservatives are just people for the status quo or it's like, this is going too far and society is going to crumble if we don't call if, people he's and she's because of who can have babies and who can't or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think on, on my opinion about it is I, I had a student in class who we, cause we spoke, we speak about this and uh, he said, I just don't understand why they're making us change for them. And that sparked a big debate in class and it was as healthy as it could be and as focused as it could be in class. But I think the very nature of that question is symbolic of a very uh, fortunate, hetero, uh, systematic kind of disposition. It's like, how I don't want to change. Stop even threatening the idea that I have to make minor changes for oppressed or marginalized groups. And so I, I challenged that. It's like, so what we're being asked to do is a, is a, is a minor tweak in language to, to, to honor somebody else's needs that don't get their needs met consistently in society. And it's not a big deal, folks. Let's adapt. You know, let's be compassionate. Why not change for them? 
Yeah, it's language. Uh, we that's... made it up. We can make it do what <laughs> yeah. we need it to do. Yeah, it's not static, you know? So, yeah, I just love how it's an issue in my head. In my mind, it's, it's such a non-issue, but I still want to honor people's opinions about their issues with it. But I just, like, don't, I just don't get it. Yeah. Well, I, it, that's and, you know, one of the things that came to mind when I said, like, when you're thinking about communication and issues, it's definitely something that's on the landscape right now. And, and Oh, yeah. And it's a rich discussion. I love talking about it with people. I, uh, I think people don't do well with awkward situations, and it makes people awkward. You know, they say, so what am I supposed to go, what am I supposed to do if I, if I see someone that's transgender or think they're transgender? What am I supposed to ask them? I'm like, yes, that's exactly what you do. They love that. It's like, so what's your pronoun? Yeah. Uh, my, that was yeah, my... Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I've always been, you know, I guess a very passive ally. Just like, oh, that's great. Fine. You know, and more hands off, though, and not really inactive, which is, you know, coming to find like, you know, it's like, oh, I, I, I should have or could have said more, been more on this. It hit me more when my, my brother is transitioning into to my sister and mm -hmm. as, as and as well as another family member. Um, on top of that, just being in New York, like my best friend, uh, you, you remember John Murdoch? Uh, yeah. He used to work at the Lucky Chang's drag restaurant and, oh yeah. And, uh, those ladies had stories, <laughs> but it, I you know. know, just, and, and now, but now it's in, 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 in my world and I'm, uh, with like my, it's hitting family members who have never met trans people. And so they're hit with like finding out that like, Oh, who they thought was their nephew now wants to be called their niece and they've been fed a bunch of bullshit kind of through, you know, they're more right wing on different things, watch Fox news and stuff. And so it's a terrain that now I have to personally navigate is watching from afar when you have people who, yeah, throwing around, like saying like, this is a societal, uh, going to mess with the foundations of society like or the way Jordan Peterson would talk <laughs> about it and things like that it's like calm calm down and 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 recognize that these people oh, have humanity man. and 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 accommodating for that and and the wider you know spectrum of of what humanity is it's like it's fine guy calm down yeah, for sure yeah and i think you know Brian Stevenson who wrote Just Mercy and founder of the EJI Equal Justice Initiative mm -hmm. He came to speak at a college, and he was his main thesis was we need to get proximate to the things that we're uncomfortable about, and that's the only way that we can build empathy and compassion. We're not going to find it or be able to build it uh, in our in our little caves, and, and cities have it easier for that, you know, because we can be exposed. I think you have we're such a huge country, and you have people hidden away that don't aren't exposed to the things that they're scared of, so they stay scared. And they don't want to change for it. Yeah, Deb and I talk a lot about the the comfort bubble um, that exists for a lot of people that uh, in many different ways. Um, but that's a whole I think that's a whole other like we're, we're going to get into like, yeah, sociology and communication theory. And, and this is going to go on forever. I actually um, and I try and keep these things somewhat on track, even though I got to edit them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> totally. uh but it, I do see a segue there from like what you studied with communications. How has that 
melded into your songwriting process and, and has your understanding of communication through your, your education uh, changed your songwriting process from like where it started and where, where it is? Yeah, I mean, I think when I deal with communication studies, it's very macro and we're looking at trends in communication and how that uh, affects outcomes. And I think that applies to uh. my relationships. But also, I do get pretty micro and self-analytical in songwriting, and it is more about the intrapersonal communication. So what's upstairs in my head and traumas and growing and how I can be my best self. And um, so, it, so it doesn't get very macro in that sense, but I think it's it's maybe more subtly seeps into the songwriting. I rarely sit down with some in intention of addressing, you know, big, big macro communication issues, but it's still always there and in me and in, in guiding some empathic pursuit with songwriting.
where do you find uh, you get you draw your inspiration for writing songs? Does it have uh, are there emotional spaces that you're you're more inspired by, or is it incidental, like what happens across your path? Yeah, I mean, recently the inspiration songwriting has been very much more melodic and hypnotic. I don't really go in with lyrical intentions so much. That's very secondary. Uh, I'm more interested in melody and movement and style of uh, the music itself, Um, whether that be on guitar or piano, and then, you know, a message or lyrics can come after. It used to not be that way. So, like, you know, I want to write about this particular thing, but I don't... I don't know. I'm, 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 I guess I'm less, um, yeah, I'm just less motivated to, to write music with, with a lyrical message intent, as opposed to like letting the melody decide what I'm, what I'm feeling. Well, just cause what I, want to say. I know, I know it's one of my favorite songs. Can you take me through maybe where a song like so far gone came from? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I wrote that when I was pretty young and, I still play it. I love playing that song, actually. Um, And that is mainly about uh, how growth and change are inevitable and a very positive thing. So death of of an old self, an old idea of self, of ego, uh, allowing things to die and be reborn, which is a very common theme throughout all my songwriting, for sure. What was your first experience going into recording? Um, did you just go in as a, a solo? Yeah, I was in Chico, and the guy Scott Barwick, who I worked with on a couple records, and yeah, it was it was oh my god, so much fun. I think it's a little less fun now because I'm more critical and more just so much more picky you're certainly more ambitious it seems yeah i don't like being having fun in the studio rarely translates to a worthwhile record and in my in my experience i think that you know you 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 can have a, a great song uh and in the studio is really being super analytical about like you know if i is this worthwhile do i there's 20,000 songs uploaded to Spotify every day and I'm going to add to this mix, you know, like what, what am I adding to this tapestry of stuff? Um, and you know, a guy with a guitar having fun in the studio is like, uh, you know, it just, who cares? What is your approach to collaborating with a full band? Um, I, I've seen you work with a, a couple of the same people here and there, but then I remember back in New York, you kind of did this super troop thing. Uh, Deb was in it playing uh, bass clarinet while she was pregnant with Charlie, if, yeah. I, if I recall. Yeah, that was awesome. I, yeah, I think uh, what's been really fun about collaboration is that, you know, speaking of language and symbols, you know, I'm we're not I'm not a band. It's not like let's form a band. It's like I here I am as a songwriter and you connect with people like, Hey, is this inspired? Do you want to join this thing? And, but it's not like there's no pressure, you know, it's like all along this adventure, I've had people just come and go 
whether that's because they move or I move or the sound changes, but there's no been, there's been no formal, you know, you're out of the band. It's like, Hey, you know, if you're inspired by some of this stuff that I'm writing, then hop on board for some shows. Um, you know, so it, it, there's been some consistency, but especially recently with some guys in Chico that I'm working with, but generally speaking, it's been kind of fortunate of like not a consistent band breaking up or, or getting back together. It's just like, you know, I've, I've had amazing people such as, such as Deb and a lot of New York folks that just hopped on board until it was over. What is the New York chapter of your musical journey? What's the arc you go through with that as far as how, why you went there and then, and, and leaving? Leaving New York? Yeah. I mean, I was dirt poor in New York. It was, you know, becoming very obvious very quickly that there was not any sustainability there. And I had other, I have other desires and needs outside of music, like family and, you know, getting quality food, (laughs) (laughs) you know, stuff that requires some sense of money and not living, not paying $1,500 a month and spending my whole paycheck and having nothing left over. I think that just wears on anybody. Did you sort of just go into it like, I'm going to see what happens as far as starting to go to Mike's and then, um, what, uh Oh, we've lost Pat Hall. Well, while I've got you here, the today's episode is brought to you by Uber conference, Uber conference. It is the preferred platform on BBC listening for doing remote interviews with a premium package. You can record calls. You can set custom hold music. Uh, even with the free level, you can set custom hold music. I prefer using the Rick Astley hold music so that you can automatically Rick roll anyone who calls into your conference line. When you sign up for Uber conference, use the promo code busy listening. Nothing will happen, but I'm going to just see if maybe there'll be a sponsor. Uh, I'm running out of things to say. I don't know if I'm going to get Pat and he's back. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Pat Hull. Hey, sorry about that. My phone died. I'm trying to think, where were we? You're talking about New York, and I was curious about yeah. what your just well, yeah, what your experience was in the through line of New York for you. And it sounds like you were you were really you know just the grind of getting through it. And that's one thing I was very interested in is just you know if you just go into it not knowing what. And like I saw a lot of musicians just doing that, like oh, it's like you said, it's the thing to do. You go to New York and you play, and then the. For some people, it seemed like the thing to do was like, okay, now I get booked at the Rock Hall and Local 269 and, you know, X venue and X venue and X and then hustle, hustle and get people to come out and see and, and market yourself for what. So what, was that anything resembling like what you kind of approached New York as? Yeah, I think I definitely did that hustle and it was, you know, not life giving at all. It was totally soul sucking after a while, you know, it's like. Uh, the artist is asked to do everything, promote the show, bring a certain amount of people out, not get paid, assemble, find a practice studio. I mean, everything is time and money. And then what (laughs) is like, there's so many dead ends. It's like, I, the, the base of this is that when I was depending on art to pay rent, I was starting to form a really shitty relationship with art and i and once i didn't do that i was like 
I was free again to create without any kind of, there's no burden on the creative process. I, well, I definitely think if you were trying to subsist on your art in a market like New York, like at the bottom level, you just can't, it's a negative balance, no matter what, just a negative balance, unless you're living for free, like in some unicorn situation where you have a friend that's just gifting you a place to live. Totally. Exactly. Did you come out of it though with any like connections wise, as far as were there people that you met there and that musicians that you collaborated with that made New York a, a worthwhile in that respect? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm flying out tomorrow. I am, to I am fishing to find out. I am fishing for my name in this list, by the way. <laughs> Aren't you glad you went to New York? You met yeah, Beezy and Deezy? Dude, yeah, of course. When <laughs> we, you set up shows for me before. We've done shows together. It's like everyone is a connection to each other in that city, and it was great. And I still call on those people. You know, Niall Connolly set up a few shows for me this week. Sasha is doing a couple shows, set up a couple shows for me this week. Um, at, this is my friend Alex Nahas from the Union Hall or Union Pool. Wait, no, Union Hall is the sound guy. He set something up for me. So, I mean, like, yeah, all those connections still live and are helping my process. Um, so, yeah, nothing was, like, pointless. It was just so hard in the moment to make make it all work in real time.
So when did you uh, become a father in in your musical journey, and and how did that shift things for you? I uh, was well, so like, my son's five, so five years ago, became a dad, and that experience has been amazing. Obviously, it's been uh, so many things, and how it's affected music. I mean. Well, the big thing is, is that, as you know, you can't possibly replicate the kind of love that you have for your kids. It's like literally impossible. I've never experienced anything like it. It's super fragile and scary uh, to have that such a deep connection with another human being. Um, And so that definitely informed a lot of songwriting and just approach to music. Um, and overall, just patience of of being a dad and what that takes. Uh, I think I've just learned. I've, I've the amount of growth I've had from being a dad. It was pretty exponential uh, in the last four or five years. So I don't. I mean, there's some direct songs I've written for him. But even outside of that, just my approach to songwriting, I think, is just matured because of being a dad and being, you know, egoless and serving a little creature responsibly and entirely. It takes a lot of work and growth. What were the songs that you wrote directly? There's a song called So Easy that I wrote for him. There's a song called All I Do that I wrote for him. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was listening to those. I'm definitely going to spend one or both of those at some point in this. Yeah, um, and even in the, le- in, the, in the less blatant ones, there's always like little verses or hints to being a dad and, sh- and uh, singing for, for him. Yeah, for me, the immediate thing that it changed, it changed about me was how, however perturbed or disturbed I was about issues in the world it just like kind of telescope mm-hmm. them out another <laughs> lifetime's worth of years You're thinking about, Oh my God, I was worried about all the things that are problematic just on my scope of the horizon. Now all of a sudden I see what my, you know, kids will have to deal with. Like it heightens issues like climate change and, um, For sure. yeah. and then it 
you know, when you live in this complicated world now with like, you know, how you talk about what the president is and the police, it's, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the stuff that's like scary, but there's the, the, the thing that was surprising and, and fun about being a dad to me was how cool it is that you get to introduce the world to everyone. Like it's the other side of that. It's like, Oh, I don't want to be the one I have to break the news to you that the president is a racist and we have concentration camps going on and all that stuff. Uh, but I'm really excited to tell you all about how caterpillars turn into fucking butterflies. It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, the political thing I've, I've talked about, it almost is like, uh, it's a helpless feeling. I'm sure you know. It's like, what do I even do? Uh, and I've talked about, like, do I even want to live here? You know, especially if if we get another four years with someone that is, is not going to nourish the next generation in any capacity. Like, it's a serious question parents have to ask. Like, do I want to continue living in this place? Uh, so yeah, big, big time kind of reflections on, on where we are in society right now. You know, it was really, as it relates to having little ones. Well, we actually, we took our boys and, um, my niece was visiting at the same time. They had the lights for Liberty, lights for Liberty vigils all over the country. And they have one in downtown Cleveland. So we went to that and we're driving there and, you know, one of the kids, one of the older ones, I think it was like Dom's like, well, what are we going to do while we're there? I'm like, we're going to listen to people speak about what's happening. <laughs> and we're going to hold candles and maybe stand silently for a bit. And they're like, well, that would be boring. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> Dominic, your white privilege is just like oozing out of the car. <laughs> for sure. Because like, you know, when we go there. There were two kids this that stood there for this entire presentation through like five or six speakers over the course of, I would say at least an hour to an hour and a half holding up giant signs that said, you know, text defense to four, four, three, two, one for like contributing to an immigration defense fund. And they stood there the whole time, like holding these signs, not like spinning them around. And, 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 and like I would, I, when I pictured Dominic up there or at some point he'd just be sitting, make a game out of it. Yeah. yeah, Or something or like making, like hiding and making faces. And I went and complimented their mom at the end of it. It was like, wow, your kids. And she's like, well, this is real to them. Right, right, right. Yeah, there's no fun in games. They, no, and they I said I totally to get that. To their life. I totally get that, and that's the thing that I struggle with with my kids is like, how do I make this real to them? Because there's such little, they're kind of wired to be narcissistic, and and or I don't know, everything's about them, and it's hard sometimes to make them. I don't know, one versus the other though, because Charlie is far more like, what's happening? That's wrong. And then Dominic's just like, mm. look what I can do with my, you know fingers <laughs> yeah i think every person has empathy kind of hit them at different stages mm-hmm. and uh you know hopefully it's just sooner <laughs> than later with especially our our white kids you know it's just so easy to be you know life's fine life's okay yeah like i said before about like getting proximate bring him to that event it's like good for you man like 
Well, at the very That's least, like, it's like the issues. music thing. It's like we're we're going to be playing music. Like we're going to this protest. So, you know, right? Here's the intention for this event. Like, and this is what we're going to do. Yeah, at least n- normalizing that and calling out that what's going on should not be normal. Because we also do. We were talking about like why we're going down there and what's happening and how wrong that is. And yeah, when Dom's like, "Oh, I'm gonna," be, will I be bored? I'm like, "Well." Let's talk about how bored the kids that have been separated from their parents are and how <laughs> how they feel sleeping on concrete. And yeah, you know, every yeah, every generation has this like look back at their parents like, what the fuck? How could you let this go down? Right. You know, I talk with my parents about Vietnam. It's like, how, how, like, what were you doing during this time? This is nuts. And, you know, this is our moment where I think people are going to be like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? This went on for how long? Yeah, it really is. Where kids were being, you know. It's certainly something where it's like I can't I can't fathom a, a defense of it no matter what, you know, people can talk about, you know, I've had at bars or something someone some people will say, "Oh, it's awful, but we do need to do something about immigration." I'm like, "Yeah, but not fucking this." No, seriously. It's not an argument to say uh that we do need to do something that isn't an alternative it isn't resolving this or seeing it as a crisis in itself it's not this or nothing i know that the old either or fallacy yeah well so i mean there's so much shitty in the world we can bring it back though to maybe the shitty of like the music business is there (laughs) has, (laughs) has there been um what have you been learning about how are you navigating sort of the business side of music and have you found a way now where you know you're playing, I, I, you know, I see you mostly playing locally in Chico. I never really catch you getting out there. And I imagine you have the full-time job teaching. How are you defining success for yourself as a musician at this point, essentially? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a big period of waiting. The slow burn of, like, letting art pragmatically substantiate your life. Uh, and so, I don't know if I define it, it's successful will always be compartmentalized. You know, like I feel really successful in terms of my wanting my craft to grow always and then having it be some, you know, authentic representation of myself, but also that it is worthwhile to give to other people that some other people will benefit from it or be calm from it or reflect in their their own lives from it whatever they want to use it for uh but in terms of like the business side of it that's just like a big patient thing it's like you know i have a few different companies that work on syncing with the songs in terms of putting it into like movies and all that stuff and um and they have like my whole catalog and they're working doing on their own pace trying to place those I think what what I would define as success for live shows is to continually just play venues that have great sound, where there's not sound issues, where we're not setting up our own shit, where um, they have great promotion and they treat the artists as artists and not people that will get them money. How many heads can you get through the door type of situation? I think um, I want to have more of those experiences to be consider, consider myself successful in terms of live shows uh, like i said before i have 
I just got, I bought a house and I have my, my job and I don't, I don't put pressure on the creative process to give me anything. I think I just try my best to, to get better at the thing and take opportunities when they come and let everything else kind of fall into whatever happens. Yeah, no, and that's, I think a good place to be to some extent, if you can, if you have the patience for it too, and it, but yeah, to just be playing music on your own terms at your own pace that you need to. Yeah. As you know, like there's so much, so much more besides music, you know, when you're a dad or like so much stuff to read and so much things to learn. And like, uh, this, this life doesn't stop as you wait for some opportunity to happen, you know? So it's like, I have no problem you know, living all the other amazing aspects of this life without having to, you know, go on some major tour that's going to give me a break or whatever. I've really adapted a model of success that uh, it was actually John Murdoch. I don't know if he said it in his like one man show or as part of like stand up sets, but it, it was a sincere moment he took in one of those and said, you know, your success, the greatest success in life is your friends, the people who choose mm. to have you in their life and, and, and celebrate you and are there for you. And I love that brother. I have to go. Uh, I have a show tonight and I have to still fix some of this plumbing stuff. Did you, do you think we have enough material? Or do you want to... No, no, no. We can, we can certainly go. Um, I just wanted to know if there's anything um, you have coming up or specific that you want to plug or put out there and tell people about. Uh, sure. Yeah. In New York this Sunday, Bowery Electric. Oh, I, this will go up on Monday. <laughs> We're going to miss that plug. Unfortunately. Okay. But, um, that's okay. I mean, uh, is it mainly New York viewers? I can, no, it's Cleveland. No, it's, I, I mean, a... I've got New York and Cleveland, but, uh, if it's just, uh, I'll point everyone towards your stuff, patholemusic.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Big, big hugs to dad. Thank you. And great talking with you. All I do is wait for you. Everything's here. Just the way you left it, green stone on the piano. You know I hold it.
Balance you on a spoon, so it's all I 